Thank you so much, Peter, for that introduction. Um, and thank you, the Galenic community is very welcoming, so I'm happy for that. Um, and it is such a pleasure to be here. Everything looks much different today after a night's sleep, but uh, much better. Um, so, so that's great. So I'm going to be covering um, a little bit of some of the same ground um, as as Jim was covering yesterday, but hopefully you'll bear with me and uh, there won't be too much overlap. There's just a point, so I'll go through it um, as I wrote it. So on the subject of nature, Galen was an indomitable optimist. He was a vocal supporter of Plato's claim in the Tenius that the world and everything in it was created by an intelligent demiurge, and of course he never grew tired of admiring his handiwork. He was an equally enthusiastic proponent of Aristotelian teleology. For Galen, every part of the human body has been created, quote, so that it would not have been better if it had come into being differently. In short, throughout his vast corpus of writings, Galen is passionately committed to the intelligence of nature and the boundless foresight with which she enables us to live and to thrive. Now, none of this means, of course, that Galen thought that the Demiurge had created a perfect world. In a critique of the God of Moses known to many of you, he emphasizes that the Demiurge achieves the best results he can under the material conditions under which he must work. What this means is that the survival and, of course, the flourishing of any organism is always contingent, a likely outcome, at least at birth. And as it turns out, there are many ways in which things can go wrong. Galen was, after all, a practicing physician. He was pretty well acquainted with the many ways in which an organism, like a dysfunctional family in Tolstoy, could malfunction. So here, then, are the two poles between which Galen navigates. On the one hand, a strong commitment to nature's knowingness and self-sufficiency, and I would actually call this a kind of vitalism of en la lettre. On the other hand, a professional interest in the rich spectrum of organic failure. So I want to describe this in-between space as the terrain where you have the possibility or the probability of flourishing. It's defined, as we'll see in more detail shortly, by on the one hand a deck stacked in favor of life, and on the other by the materiality of mixtures. It is, above all, a space of open-endedness. So we're talking here about the live body and not the dead one, about physiology and not anatomy. So Galen tries to make sense of this space in various treatises, but he's always aware that his account of the intelligence imminent in the body is at best plausible or persuasive. Pythonos. In the late work on my own opinions, for example, he explicitly invokes the likely story or the fitting story that we have in the Timaeus, the Ecos Muthos or the Ecos Logos. Um, and he does so interestingly enough in that text when he's trying to understand the life of plants towards the end of the, that text. Um, at other times, though, Galen despairs of finding even a plausible story to tell about uh, life and its intelligence. So my goal today is to take a closer look at how Galen understands the powers, the dunames, behind the flourishing of human life. So more specifically, I'm interested in the relationship between what I'll call vegetal life and the active care of life enabled by techne. So I'll start by talking about vegetal life. And thinking about that concept, we're especially well served by the treatise on the natural faculties. So the text pursues even more than on the usefulness of parts, an explanation that goes beyond talking about the static structures of the human body, to think about the faculties that sustain the organism as it's alive. Um, and for that reason, it's a good example of what's been called um, perhaps a bit controversial, uh, controversial um, biological functionalism. But even more important on the natural faculties gives us Galen's uh, a fascinating perspective on Galen's views about the plant-like stratum of human nature. So life on this plane does not choose to live. At the same time, the plant-like body is organized by a sense of purpose and technical skill that Galen affirms time and again. So Galen, as we'll see, is even more open to the distributed intelligences of the physical world than Aristotle and the Stoics, and yet he struggles to understand the non-conscious knowingness of nature. At the same time, the natural faculties can only function if the material state of the body is optimal. 
It's because the faculties are vulnerable to the nature of the mixture that underlies them that flourishing isn't just an imminent function. It's also a practice that has to be undertaken by conscious, rational agents. So in the second part of the paper, I'll take a look at the displacement of the act of living onto the person who both mimics and completes the dynamic work of the body's plant-like nature. At the end of the paper, I want to say a few words about the epistemic position of this patient, what they know and what they don't know. For as we'll see, the very fact that it's so hard to comprehend the imminent intelligence of the organism is a symptom of a split within the embodied subject into two terrains, two powers and two chances at life. So you would be forgiven at first glance for thinking the subject matter of on the natural faculties to be a bit dry. Um, as Jim said yesterday, it's about the threefold activities of nature, thesis in a living body, generation, nutrition, and growth. And in talking about nature here, Galen is self-consciously using the stoic opposition between um, thesis and psyche, but he's also very well aware that there are people who would have called um, thesis the um, appetitive part of the soul, uh, if they're Platonists, or the nutritive part of the soul of Aristotle. So he frequently sort of notes that there are different ways to talk about this, um, but he for various reasons, prefers to talk about it in terms of thusis. Of course, this idea of a plant-like stratum of life is already evident in the Hippocratic corpus, but it's found mostly in the context of embryology, where it's associated, um, it does, uh, where, where it sort of has a happy home um, for most of ancient medicine. But note that already in the Hippocratic corpus, you can have, for example, an on regimen, you have the idea of trees who make adjustments to the seasons without any gnome, who are automatic in their adjustment to life. So there's that strand of plant-like nature, sort of non-conscious adaptation to life there from the beginning as well. But at any rate, to go back to on the natural faculties, it's not long before we discover that these subjects, nutrition in particular, um, are ones that Galen has strong opinions about. Nutrition sends him off into digression about the two major sects that have something to say about nature, and this is the first passage on the handout. So, as we saw yesterday, the first sect believes that, quote, all substance subject to genesis and corruption is at once continuous and capable of alteration. The other one thinks that, quote, substance is unchangeable, unalterable, and subdivided into fine particles, and separated by empty spaces in between. Now, the logical outcome of these respective ontological positions turns out to involve very high stakes indeed. The corpuscular theorists, Galen argues, deny that we can assign any special stuff or faculty to nature or soul. Everything depends rather on small bodies interacting below the threshold of perception. These theorists hold that we are nothing more than cattle enslaved to our senses, or at least this is Galen's characterization of them. They deny dreams, birds, omens, and the whole of astrology. After all, the gods couldn't care less about us. They think wisdom and temperance and filial love are all nonsense, leros. By contrast, the other sect puts nature first and foremost ontologically. It's nature who comes before anything else, nature who creates plants and animals, nature who endows creatures with the faculties, the dynamis, that they need to survive and flourish according to their respective natures. Interestingly, these faculties include those who are caring for offspring, forming friendship, and developing moral judgment. So Galen scales all the way down to the most basic functions of life and all the way up to our closest effective ties to our community, and that's like scaling up and down I'll come back to. Nature does everything with skill and order, always keeping in mind the best outcome for the organism. Now, um, since we've already had a spoiler alert, it's not hard uh, to guess which team Galen is playing for here. Indeed, his commitment to the technical skill of nature virtually defines his philosophical stance, not just in On the Natural Faculties, but in other writings as well. Galen argues that the very structure of the human body gives a clear indication, ekdeknusai, of the wisdom and the power of the one who's created it. The evidence from structure is so obvious that he declares he can be in no way persuaded not to see the body as the product of a brilliant craftsman. That's in On the Formation of the Fetus. And in on, the, on the natural faculties, he argues it's not by chance or without reason that nature has created the uterus, for example, in such a way that it contracts around and retains the embryo for a certain amount of time, nor is it by chance, to take another example, that there are fossae of a certain, um, a certain uh, uh, narrowness around the heart. 
So Galen thinks that you can see the foresight and the purposefulness of the demiurge even in the mud or the slime of the body. Now, as the reader of On the Usefulness of Parts knows, anatomy is a fine source of evidence for claims about teleology. But as I said earlier, the intelligence and purpose of nature can be seen, too, in the activities, the energei, that are responsible for creating and sustaining life, such as genesis, growth, and nutrition. So Galen refers to these, refers these activities um, back to what he calls the natural faculties, though the physicae dynamis. And he thinks that anyone who recognizes their existence has to concede that substance is continuous and subject to alteration. So by contrast, as we've seen, those who favor a corpuscular view not only deny that uh, nature is skilled and intelligent, they also deny the presence of natural faculties altogether. So from the heretic's perspective, nature does not pre-exist and direct the formation of a complex body. Rather, it emerges from a conglomeration of primary elements that lack any creative powers, that is, the power to shape or to nourish or to increase the organism. And moreover, these elemental microbodies are impassive and unchanging. As a result, genuine, genuine genesis, growth, and nutrition are impossible. So anyone rash enough to defend the atomist position has to believe not just that living bodies come together uh, at random or by chance, which of course was a criticism that was um, hurled at the atomists quite a lot, but they also have to believe that the processes that sustain life are without technique. So the main targets of Galen's attacks are two long-dead but still famous physician theorists, known probably to most of you, both of whom used mechanistic principles to explain activities like nutrition and urinary secretion. So the first is Asclepiades of Bithynia, who around the, uh, around the late 2nd or early 1st century BC reduced everything that happens in the body to the movement of invisible uh, corpuscles, onque through invisible passages, um, or as David Leith has recently argued, and I think rightly, through voids. So these are the poroi. So the dominant principle governing these small bodies, of course, is the movement towards what is fine. Everything can be explained in terms of this principle. So Galen's primary example, or we might want to say his primary whipping post, is Asclepiades' account of urinary secretion. So doing away with a complex system of interlocking parts in the body, Asclepiades allegedly treats the bladder as nothing but a sponge that absorbs, absorbs the fluid that we drink in the form of vapors. So in other words, he finds the material composition of the bladder, the fact that it is porous, sufficient to explain its attraction of urine, of course, in light of his primary principle. So there's no imminent skill or intelligence necessary. Matter is, at its heart, undifferentiated and responsive only to the dictates of mechanistic necessity. So Asclepiades, then, to Galen's eternal horror, refuses to admire the artistic skill of nature, he technetes fuseos. He and his followers have the audacity to claim that nature made the parts of the body for no purpose, matting. Now, the second of Galen's targets is Aristotus, the 3rd century BCE Alexandrian anatomist. Now, unlike Asclepiades, Aristotus thinks that he's doing a version of Aristotelian teleology as Galen is willing to recognize. His fatal mistake in Galen's eyes is his refusal to recognize the natural faculties. So he relies instead on the mechanical principle um, movement towards the void, prostokonumenon akalusia. Now, Galen, um, again, as we saw yesterday, doesn't deny this principle altogether, um, although he really only acknowledges it late in on the natural faculties. So um, later, uh, in, in, and towards the end of that text, he accepts that there are two kinds of attraction. One is the kind by which a vacuum is filled. The other is the kind by which particular types of matter are attracted by particular bodies or particular parts of bodies. So the first part he um, he um, illustrates by uh, air drawn into a bellows. And the paradigm of the second is the lodestone's attraction of iron, a case that Galen actually spends a good deal of time with earlier in the treatise in, in Book 1, Chapter 13. He has a long explanation of the lodestone. And it's worth pointing out that the lodestone uh, is an example that shows up in other places in Galen's corpus. It shows up, for example, in the commentary on Epidemics 2, again, as an example 
example of, um, in that case, sympathetic attraction. And that's a, that was a common topos in, um, in uh, arguments about sympathy in antiquity. So it's not an accidental choice, um, the lodestone. Um, and Galen comes back to it again and again. So nature uses both of these kinds of attraction in arranging the body of the animal for what is best. But it is the second type of attraction that based on what, uh, what Galen calls appropriateness of quality, oikiotes poiotitos, that most spectacularly exhibits the providential reasoning of nature. And not surprisingly, then, it's just this kind of attraction that Aristotle is said to reject. Instead, he relies solely on the attractive power of void to explain what for Galen can be understood only in terms of the imminent technical knowledge of the organism. So I want to take a closer look now at how Galen accounts for the knowingness of nature at the non-conscious level of life, including human life. So Galen believes, as we've just seen, that nature's wisdom and foresight are responsible for the organism coming into being in a certain way. Like a chair or a bed, the structure of the organism manifests the creative, resourceful, and goal-directed intelligence behind it. Yet the body is a living thing. That means its defining features, uh, feature is its capacity to develop and thrive, and that capacity is realized through a range of faculties. But unlike structures, however, these faculties cannot be seen directly. Galen classifies them formally, as we saw yesterday, as a type of cause and idea. Therefore, their presence has to be inferred through visible products, that is, the effects of the activities of the natural faculties, such as flesh and blood and nerves. And the faculties can also be inferred from activities energei like digestion, absorption, and blood production. If, therefore, and this is number two on the handout, we're to investigate methodically the number and kinds of faculties, we must begin with effects. For each of these effects comes from a certain activity, and each of these, again, is preceded by a cause. Now, in this respect, the faculties are a good deal like the Demiurge himself, who also has to be glimpsed through his creations. The resemblance goes deeper still. Like the master creator, the true essence of the natural faculties is unknown. In fact, the relationship between the two, the demiurge and the natural faculties, is not just analogical but quite direct. For it's through the activities of the faculties that the plan of the demiurge comes to be enacted not just at birth but over the course of a life. It's the way that the logos of the demiurge keeps being enacted, um, Kellen has an interesting, um, entertains the idea that the, the demiurge might be like a creator of theatrical um, machines who gives a push to life and then the motions that he gives to the body just sort of keep going, as it were, and he rejects this. He says, the body is fluid, there's no way it could hold those motions from the demiurge well enough to keep sort of performing life accurately. And so he rejects that. So we have to see the logos of the demiurge not just at the beginning, but enacted over the course of the life through the faculties. Um, so the faculties make the logos of the demiurge fundamentally dynamic in the in the strong sense of dynamis. So Galen, as we'll see, struggled to understand precisely how the demiurge's creative intelligence could become imminent in a life. But before looking more closely at his difficulties, it's worth taking a closer look at these faculties that engender and sustain life. So in the treatise, Galen is especially interested in two faculties in particular, attraction and uh, the attractive faculty and the expulsive factor, uh, faculty. So what makes these dynamics more than simply mechanical is that they can distinguish between different kinds of matter. So Galen talks about the attractive faculty as that which attracts its own special quality. The expulsive faculty, by contrast, gets rid of what is foreign or hostile to the organism. So why are these faculties so important to Galen? Every living body is, of course, born into a state of flux. So if it's going to develop and maintain itself in a particular way, that body needs to be able to recruit the material stuffs that are around it to advance its own life, first in the service of growth and then in the service of nutrition. It does these things through the faculties by which it selects which stuffs are appropriate and which stuffs are foreign. So note that we are not talking here about the old pre-Socratic standby of, of like to like. I do think that it's almost certain that this principle and its opposite are the forerunners of the categories of oikeon and allotreon. 
But tell oikeon isn't just what's the like. The word has a wide range of meanings that cluster initially around the concept of kinship and the positive affective relationships to which it gives rise. What is oikeon is something that belongs to you and for which you may feel affection. It's interesting there's an affective relationship in oikeon because so much of the time you get that strong sense of attraction. Loves and hates are associated with um, with what's oikeon and elotrion, which is different from just uh, like to like. Um, so these are the, the meanings that seem to be at the root of the Stoic concept of oikeosis, around which most of the contemporary or, or, or modern um, scholarly interest in toikeon has come from. Oikeosis can also be a relationship of natural affinity uh, between species that rely on each other for mutual survival or um, where there's a relationship that benefits one species. So this is the sense of the word in a fragment from Theophrastus, where he talks about the oikeosis between the bee and the oak tree. So that's a famous fragment for thinking about the history of Stoic oikeosis, um, and whether it's Theophrastus or not, but um, I, won't, I won't go into that. Um, but this concept of oikeosis that Theophrastus is talking about is very common, um, starting with Aristotle's discussion of the natural um, filiae that between species in, in Book 8 of the, the Historia Animalium and gets discussed in Pliny at great length and in Elian. So this idea of natural community is very common um, in ancient philosophy. Chrysippus uh, is very interested in the, the, the pinna and the pinnagard, for example. He comes back to them again and again. Again, this natural community between species. So finally, there's the concept of to-oikeon that implies a more asymmetrical relationship between one body's survival and another. That's to say the designation is made from the perspective of one body and what's necessary to the perpetuation of its life. This is the relevant field of meaning for Galen, at least in the discussion of nutrition. So what is oikeon to a body is that which can be assimilated, and Galen thinks that this can happen only if the bodies have a certain community and affinity, so a koinonia and a syngenea in their qualities. So the animal can only be nourished by what is appropriate to it. The underlying concept of likeness is still relevant here. So Galen thinks it's easier for us to assimilate um, red meat, for example, uh, as opposed to lettuce or uh, or a radish. I imagine, you know, if you're a red-blooded American, maybe even maybe it's even easier to, to digest red meat. That, of course, flies in the face of what most people think about digestion now. But it shows the kind of underlying notion of it's not very far for, like, the meat of a cow to, to turn into blood, then, uh, as far as Galen's concerned. So you see the notion of likeness is still operating. Um, but it's also, the notion of like-to-like -like is also complicated by Galen, where the animal has the need on the one hand for different organs to perform the work of assimilation. Of course, there's more organs and more work involved the more unlike the food is. On the other hand, it needs to be able to separate out from that that thing, what is unusable, that is what it cannot make into itself, and to get rid of this stuff from the body, and that's the expulsive factor. So you have to get rid of a lot of radish if you if you are so rash as to be eating such things. Um, now, of course, at the same time, there must be a faculty that is also resists what's foreign in the first place. So the expulsive faculty is part of a larger way in which the organism gets away from what it can't make in, what it can't master. So we can start to see here why Galen thinks that the body needs faculties to discriminate between what's proper to it and what's foreign to it if it is to survive. So without boast, without these faculties with the power of discrimination, life is impossible. Um, and therefore the faculties are clear evidence, again, um, of the demiurge and the rational foresight and care that he took. But does this mean that the faculties should be seen as possessing the wisdom and the reason and the foresight of the creator? That question posed some difficulties for Galen. We can start to get a sense of these difficulties by looking at an analogy from the second book of On the Natural Faculties, which is designed as part of a lesson on something else we were talking about yesterday, the generative power of the male seed. So in this analogy, Galen starts by likening the seed to the sculptor um, Phidias. Both possess the faculties of their techne, and these faculties are activated when they meet with their proper material, so wax and female generative matter, respectively. The craftsman on this, mo this model, Phidias, is external to that which he creates. But here, of course, is where the analogy starts to get tricky. For the seed, as soon as it begins to work on the matter, becomes the nature of the animal, hey, fusis, um, the, the fusis of the animal. So it's no longer other or external external 
to the matter. Here's how Galen then spells out the difference between what happens here and what happens with the craftsman's work, and this is number three on the handout, which I'll read. For this nature which shapes and gradually adds to the parts is most certainly extended throughout their whole substance. Yes, indeed, she shapes and nourishes and increases them through and through, and not on the outside only. Um, for Praxiteles and Phidias and all the other statuaries used, used to merely decorate their material on the outside, insofar as they were able to touch it, but its inner parts they left unembellished, unwrought, unaffected by art or foresight, forethought, since they were unable to penetrate therein and to reach and to handle all portions of the material. It is not so, however, with nature. Every part of a bone she makes bone, every part of the flesh she makes flesh, and so with fat and all the rest, there is no part which she has not touched, elaborated, and embellished. So in shifting from the craftsman to nature, we move from an externalized skill to a kind of imminent intelligence. But the very moment that Galen starts talking about a techne that's imminent in the animal, the language of intelligence begins to falter. So Galen's analogy between Phidias and the male seed is a comparison between two artificers. Each has to decide how much of the material in question is appropriate, since neither the blood nor the wax itself knows how much of itself to contribute. So in this decision-making role, the semen seems to acquire almost a kind of self-reflexive um, perspective on the process. So it furnishes itself with the right amount of blood that it needs in order to affect the processes that it needs to, to, um, to do. And um, Galen actually then refers to the semen in this capacity as a third overseer of the animal generation. So it's as if it's the seed and the material and then the semen as the person, as it were, the decision maker, bringing the amount of material needed um, to do what he needs to do. And yet, having said this, Galen cautions that we have to be careful not to, quote, carelessly attribute some kind of reasoning and intelligence, lotismon tinekainun, to the seed. That would be a category mistake, he says, for we'd then be talking not about the seed or about nature, but about the living animal itself, Zoan Autu. And Galen is certain that the faculties do not operate according to reason and intelligence, so he's very much against any kind of homunculus model. But here, then, is the problem. It's precisely because Galen believes that the natural faculties lack reasoning and mind that he will eventually struggle elsewhere to accept that they can even lie behind the sperm's capacity to shape, or as we saw, become a nature. In the formation of the fetus, he'll actually go back on his position and on the natural faculties, namely that the natural faculties can account for the generation of the fetus on their own. His argument in the, in the uh, probably later text is that the natural faculties aren't just unwise, but again, entirely without reason, pantapasin alogon. So how could something that's without reason ever be responsible for creating life? The problem actually goes deeper than generation. That's because that even if we grant that there's some special formative faculty that's not a natural faculty, the fact remains, as we've seen, that some kind of intelligence is keeping us alive through the very activities of the natural faculties. However we classify this intelligence, it also has to be present in plants, seeing as they maintain themselves dynamically, and likewise, it has to be present in the vegetal stratum of animal life. So Galen um, had... Uh, explains the process of self-maintenance we saw earlier primarily in terms of the power of the natural faculties to discriminate between kinds of matter. But if the natural faculties start to fall short in being able to do that, does that mean we now have to ascribe mind or something like it to plants? Now, in fact, in, um, in the late work on my own opinions, Galen does think that plants might have a limited form of sensing, eisthesis, that allows them to differentiate between what is appropriate in the environment and what is foreign. So he's explicitly following Plato here in the Timaeus at 77a, but he's still very much out on a limb. Aristotle had rejected um, the idea that plants have eisthesis, and the Stoics had put the plants very firmly on the side of phusis as opposed to, uh, to psuche. Um, the question of plant sensing is, in fact, the question that Galen closes the treatise with. So that decision shows that he was preoccupied to the very end of his life with the question of not just how life forms, but how it sustains itself. 
At any rate, in On the Natural Faculties, Galen does not allow a sensation to plants. Instead, he finds another strategy to explain the capacity of the attractive and expulsive faculties to make distinctions. And that hangs on the ideas of sympathy and, I think, in the background, that of antipathy. So turning to this, this concept of sympathy now. The concept of sympathy, in fact, plays a starring role in that clash of titans between the mechanists and the continuum theorists in Book uh, 113. So one of the main reasons for endorsing a continuum theory, Galen thinks, is that this is what the divine Hippocrates had done. To support his claim, he gives the following maxim, and this is number four on the handout. Substance is unified and undergoes alteration, and the body as a whole breathes together and flows together. So Galen comes back to this maxim a chapter later where he adds the crucial notion that everything in the co-breathing, co-flowing body also suffers together, panta sympathia. So what's more, he goes on to turn the denial of sympathy into the signature crime of the corpuscular position. Asclepiades, the worst of the materialist offenders, allegedly believes, and this is number five on the handout, quote, nothing is naturally in sympathy with anything else, all substance being divided and broken up into inharmonious elements and absurd molecules. So what is at stake in Galen's use of sympathy here? Sympathy becomes this term that he adds on to um, continuum theories of matter. Galen frames it as a Hippocratic doctrine, a Hippocratic inheritance, but I think this is a bit of a red herring here. So let's see. The language of sympathy does not appear in classical era medical texts. The source for the Hippocratic tag that Galen quotes here is from On Nutriment, a text dated by most modern scholars, in fact all modern scholars, to the Hellenistic period. They just... Um, disagree on how late it is, but it's no earlier than the 3rd century BCE. I mean, in part, the, the dating is based on the stoicizing language of sympathy here. And I put the, the fragment, uh, or it's not a fragment, sorry, the, the tag, um, a number six on the handout, so Nutriment 23. And in fact, I, I cut, there was a, there's actually a number of citations in Galen's corpus of this Hippocratic tag, which has a very long afterlife um, in, in Western natural philosophy, but I wanted to get it all in one page, so I took those out. Um, so if you want them, you can write to me, and I'll send you other examples of that from, from Galen. Um, so... So in fact, uh, so the Hippocratic text is actually quite late, and in fact, this sympathetic body where everything is flowing together and breathing together and suffering together is highly consistent with the Stoic Aristotelian ontology that Galen endorses. It fits in perfectly with what Chris, Gis what Chris Gill has called the high naturalism of the Stoics and Galen, by which he means a philosophy of nature committed to an organizing intelligence in the cosmos and resistant to assigning much weight to chance and mechanical necessity. So the appeal to Hippocrates looks at first glance like an application of a macrocosmic sympathy associated with Stoicism to the organism as a microcosm. Such microcosmic sympathy underwrites the concept of an organism that sustains life in part because of an all-pervading breath and the circulation of fluids, again activities that, as in macrocosmic sympathy, manifest the intelligence of the creator. But actually, if we look closer, there's more to sympathy here than the holism um, that Galen is so invested in. Sympathy is so important because it helps account for how nature expresses its unique technical intelligence through the organism. So right after he cited Hippocrates, and this is number seven on the handout, this actually fo uh, follows from um, uh, number four. And nature accomplishes everything in an artistic and just manner, possessing faculties according to which each of the parts attracts to itself the humor that's, that's proper to it, and then in turn attaches every portion of itself and entirely assimilates it. Well, that which has not been mastered in this humor, nor is capable of being totally altered and assimilated to what's being nourished, is expelled by another faculty, the expulsive one. So... This shows that for Galen, actually, Hippocratic sympathy is all about attractive and expulsive faculties, which is really what it's not about in On Nutriment at all, but shows what Galen is really um, uh, thinks uh, is at stake with sympathy. For the attraction of what is proper and the expulsion of what is foreign, um, it suggests here, are really just expressions of the more general uh, forces of sympathy and antipathy in nature. So earlier, we saw that Galen believes that att attractive and expulsive faculties ensure the maintenance of life. 
But notice now the difference um, in what this implies, or, or rather what it entails in On My Own Opinions and what that claim entails here. So in On My Own Opinions, he thinks that faculties require a minimum of perception to attract and expel. And this is why he needs to attribute perception to plants. Here, though, he frames attraction and repulsion as expressions of a force that operates through all of nature, through animate and inanimate matter alike. So here's the difference. If the attribution of perception to plants blurs the boundary between plants and animals, sympathy blurs the boundary between living and non-living things, conscious and non-conscious things, irrational and irrational things. And in fact, this property of sympathy seems to be one of its defining features. I've already mentioned the cosmic sympathy of the Stoics, which is sort of goes everywhere throughout the universe. Um, to give you another example, when Pliny begins his books on medicine and the natural history, um, he names sympathy and antipathy as the overarching principles of these books, and he says this is what the whole system is based on. And in doing so, he makes specific reference to the wars and friendships of mute and insensate objects. So he makes particular um, uh, reference to the fact that it extends to things without sentience, without um, any affective feelings. So the emphasis on non-rational and non-conscious beings is what we see in Galen too. I've already noted the lodestone. But his examples of sympathy um, in his long excursus on the lodestone go on to include emetic drugs, um, antidotes to snake venom, and in a particularly interesting example, corn um, and, and water. So the appeal to sympathy would seem to enact his vision of a cosmos that's organized by nature's purpose through and through, rather than any kind of scala naturae, any kind of hierarchy of beings, which is what you get in the Isis debate. And now having said that, um, it's interesting to note that all the examples of sympathy and antipathy are cases of relationships in nature that are organized not by nature's intelligence, but by human intelligence making use of those properties in nature to uh, for its own ends. So, uh, But I'll put that aside. I'll come back to that question of, of um, human intelligence versus natural intelligence. So before I move on, I want to just stress two aspects of sympathy and antipathy that I think are important for our discussion here. So first, these forces locate natures in specific relationships with other natures rather than reducing physical events to mechanistic laws. Second, as they're realized through the natural faculties, they pursue life according to an innate tendency toward life rather than through conscious decision-making. So Galen himself emphasizes both of these points about sympathy and antipathy. In a passage about how the stomach acts on ingested food, he stresses that the stomach does not contract in order to prepare the nutriment for the rest of the body. And the expression he uses here is diatuto. That would make it, if it did that in order to, to, to uh, get that end, it would make it an animal in possession of reason, logismos, and intelligence. An animal capable, in other words, of choosing the better of two options. Hos hyresthai tobeltion. And the stomach, like the seed, is no animal in Galen's mind. In another passage, he playfully rejects the idea that the urine sets off for the kidneys because it considers that this is the better option of two, the way that we might decide when we set off to go to the market. Um, and again, we get this idea of, of choosing, um, in this case from, um, it says, tuto belsion in anomizonta, choosing to go off to the market. So the only explanation he can find instead is that the kidneys exercise a sympathetically attractive force on the urine. So you're starting to get the idea here. Ch uh, choice plays an incredibly important role for Galen in distinguishing flourishing that happens because of the powers that are imminent in nature from actions that are undertaken for what is best, for the purpose of what is best. More specifically, choice defines the pursuit of what is best in deliberate um, um, undertakings. So here... Um, it's as if, if we go back to that famous passage from the Phaedo where Socrates um, contrasts the idea that, you know, I'm not sitting here in jail because it has anything to do with my sinews or my bones, but I'm sitting here because the Athenians decided it was best that I should die, and I decide it's best that I should obey the laws of the Athenians, and if it were up to the sinews and the bones, I would be in Megara by now. That opposition between the the kind of the body's cause and, and the mind is cause. Something else is going on, is going on here with Galen. He's actually contrasting two planes of, of, um, 
of action towards towards a goal. One is conscious decision making. What is what's for uh, doing something for what's best? The better of two options, like we find Socrates. But the, the the level of the body is not just instrumentalized in relationship to those decisions about what is best. It has its own tendencies towards what is best. And he differentiates those two realms, but he doesn't subordinate necessarily the one to the other as having no tendency forward. So, um, so that's an important thing to stress. So movement towards life at the imminent level and the deliberate pursuit of flourishing on another level. The question then becomes, why does life ever become the responsibility of deliberate agents all together at all? Why isn't it enough for an organism to survive by means of the ongoing non-conscious work of sympathy and antipathy? So I want to turn now to think about how the possibility of error within the natural activity of life creates the idea that flourishing is only a probable outcome, an outcome that then has to be secured by an intelligent, conscious agent who's acting on the body as an object of care. So Galen's larger view of nature, as we saw at the outset, is that our world is the best of all possible worlds, to borrow Jim Hankinson's phrasing. And that doesn't mean that everything always turns out for the best. Plato's Timaeus had already put forward the idea that matter can be an obstacle to the realization of the Demiurge's plan. The materiality of organisms can also interfere with their ongoing success. So in On the Natural Faculties, we find this principle expressed most clearly in Galen's recognition that the part implicated in the pull of attraction and expulsion can function successfully only if the mixture that's underlying that part is well-balanced. So if the qualities that contribute to this balance are not appropriately measured, then the activity proper to the part is compromised or destroyed. So he says no faculty in the body is immune to the vagaries of the mixture underlying it. No no faculty, he says, is, quote, tough as steel and unaffected by circumstances. The fact that the material substratum of the parts is always changing means that the individual parts and their faculties have to rely on the overall health of the organism for their success. So the parts are dependent on the whole for success, and the whole, in turn, relies on another set of factors for its well-being. These factors move us out of the world of imminent teleology and into a different world altogether, the world of human agents. What complicates the situation is that the human being is, by nature, a choice-making animal. So what he decides to eat and drink plays a big role, not only in nourishment, but in overall health course, in the functioning of the faculty. So not just one level and another, but choice-making actually now is having an impact on how those faculties can function. Now, I want to point out, because this is, I'll just touch on it, this is something I'm interested in more generally, but we're not just abandoning principles of sympathy and antipathy when we move to the embodied subject. Galen, in fact, sees appetite as informed by what's appropriate for and what's inappropriate to the organism. So more specifically, he writes in book three of On the Natural Faculties that the stomach yearns for what's appropriate and loathes what's foreign. What's more, it goes after what it wants and rejects what it doesn't. Galen writes that in all animals, when the appetite is strong enough, the stomach actually rises up and snatches the food right out of your mouth while you're still chewing. The most extreme case of this are animals whose stomachs are sometimes found in their mouths as if they're reaching up through the gullet um, like a hand. Of course, human beings, however great their appetite, still eat with their real hands. Um, And so the activity of the faculties crosses a threshold to become the activity of the conscious actor. In other words, however much the appetite is physiological, at a certain point in a human being, it's going to be mediated by the psychological animal and the appetitive faculty, of course, in in Galen. So what's most important in constructing that threshold, the difference between the stomach as hand and the hand as hand, is the idea of a choice. The importance of choice um, becomes especially clear in Galen's discussion of bile. So he starts by observing the harmful effects that an excess of bile has on the overall constitution of a human being, and then he asks, so would it not be absurd for someone to choose voluntarily, heck on, those things that contain more bile rather than those that are containing less? That choice is, is only absurd, however, if we assume that the person has knowledge about how bile acts on the body. Galen's position here, though, is that if the person doesn't have that knowledge, they certainly should have it. Um, 
Horace Galen argues, taking Aristotle as his opponent, we need to be informed if we're to write, if we're to make the right choices about our health. For obviously, he says, quote, it's in our power to alter and transmute morbid states of the body, in fact, to give them a turn for the better, epitobeltion. So these remarks make clear the two spheres where choice operates. First, we have to ourselves make decisions about what we put in the body in the first place. And second, we have the power to intervene in the body to correct pathological imbalances. In both cases, um, the deliberate choice-based pursuit of life requires externalized reasoned knowledge about the body. But let's back up again to why such reasoned actions matter at all. The reason is that the imminent intelligence guiding life at the level of the vegetal body sometimes fails to do this, and it fails to do this because it's susceptible to disruption by an agent who's capable of upsetting the delicate material conditions of flourishing. Now, just as the material conditions of life make its success only probable, so too is it only a likely possibility that the embodied subject will learn how to support its, um, his own health. So we may be creatures who are fashioned with the tools to be the stewards of our own health, but more often than not, we fail to carry out that role. Yet, as, as rational agents, we have the power to educate ourselves to make the choices that we need to if we want to ensure the optimal conditioning of flourishing. And if we fail to make those choices, that failure is ours. The very possibility of taking care arises, it's worth remembering, because of an undecidability at the heart of the vegetal body. And that undecidability is created by the vulnerability of imminent intelligence to the conditions of mixture. Whether we succeed at life as a deliberate practice depends in turn on knowledge, and more specifically, the knowledge of what's appropriate and what's foreign to the human body. So that's to say success depends on rational agents making choices that mimic the work of sympathy and antipathy, the principles that are behind the natural faculties. It's as if the principles of sympathy and antipathy have to be retraced according to reason, according to consciousness um, in the human being. Now, at the same time, the technical intelligence that I've been talking about differs from the imminent intelligence of the faculties in some of the same ways that the techne of the sculptor differs from the techne of nature. So I want to close by reflecting very briefly on the nature of knowledge about the natural faculties themselves. Galen remained puzzled to the end of his life about the imminent intelligence that brings the organism into being and ensures its survival. His puzzlement, as we'll see, can be read as a symptom of the rift between, uh, within human nature between conscious and non-conscious life. So Galen, as we just saw, is very confident that human beings can acquire the knowledge they need to take care of themselves. But some things lie beyond the parameters of certain knowledge. Galen refers to this knowledge as knowledge that goes only so far as what is credible or what is plausible, akritu pisanu. But then there are those subjects that evade even plausible knowledge. And these crop up repeatedly in, in a treatise I mentioned earlier on the formation of the fetus. Um, and again, as a, a problem that Galen faces there is one that, that we've been dealing with over the course of this talk, how animals are created, but also how life is sustained in them. Now, in this treatise, as I observed earlier, Galen resists an idea that he was, in fact, comfortable with and on the natural faculties, namely that the natural faculties can be responsible for the formation of the fetus. And as we saw, that's because the, these faculties lack reason and intelligence. So therefore, they're unable, in this treatise, to carry out the logos of the demiurge. But then how do we explain that, that creation? For Galen finds it hard to accept that the rational soul we possess at birth is responsible for the construction of the fetus. In other words, what he's uncomfortable with is the idea that a single soul, a single rational soul, governs both our creation and then continues to ensure the, con the functioning of the parts, um, and that that soul is also our rational soul. Okay, so what's the problem here? The problem lies in the disconnect between the functioning of the parts and our own understanding of how they work. So what speaks in the end against the idea of a unitary soul for Galen is the very fact that the soul that manages us has no knowledge of the parts they obey that obey its urges. So he marvels at the fact that children can speak without any understanding of how the muscles are involved produce the sounds. And of course, even as adults, we don't have any knowledge of the parts of the body 
or of their activity until we study anatomy. There's no intuitive knowledge of how those parts function. And this was, in fact, a problem that held particular fascination for Galen. And on the affected parts and along digression that's triggered by the phenomenon of erections, we find the same example of our ability to move our limbs without knowing the precise mechanisms involved. This intuitive knowledge of how to use the body was, in fact, a popular topos in ancient philosophy. The Stoics, in particular, often pointed to the ability of animals to, um, to use their parts already at birth to prove that nature made them adept at their own self-preservation. This is the Stoic doctrine of oikiosis that I referred to earlier, the idea that animals have an inborn sense of themselves and their abilities that allows them to flourish. But the Stoics are interested in these cases to make claims about animal life and the life of humans before the emergence of reason. For the Stoics, once the human being emerges as a rational being, the scope of what's intuitively known changes. So when a human being becomes rational in Stoicism, it's no longer about self-preservation, but about virtue. And under these conditions, reason doesn't just designate the end, virtue as opposed to self-preservation. It also makes rational how you get to that end, so that now the human being is conscious of how they're actually enacting this, this rational life. Um, so what this means is that the Stoics are actually not that interested in how the automatism that's associated with plant and animal life actually persists into the life of the rational being. They have a strong division between those two worlds. But Galen is. He is interested in how rational intelligence and the life of, of the body, um, um, how they coexist, where they meet and where they fail to meet. So Galen's argument is that if our reason coincided with the reason of the demiurge as it works through our parts, the workings of the body would be entirely transparent to us. But they're not, of course. The governing soul is ignorant of the very parts it commands, at least in any unmediated way that is mediated by um, knowledge. And that fact points to a gulf between the two kinds of intelligence at work in the organism, one imminent in the parts, the other concentrated in the rational mind. Galen, in these examples I've given you, is most interested in thinking about how parts of the body, such as muscles, respond to our actions. But one can extend this argument to the intelligent work of the natural faculties that we've been looking at. The point is, is that when pressed to account for such intelligence, Galen ends up marking the limits of rational inquiry. So his, veil, his very appeal to aporia enacts the problem that he describes in the speaking child. For when even probable stories about the technical intelligence, or, or sorry, when even probable stories about the technical intelligence behind the fashioning and the functioning of the parts break down, that failure bears witness to the discontinuity between nature's intelligence and our own rational endeavors to account for the world and our own bodies. It's as if Galen talks about imminent intelligence, the intelligence of the natural factors, without knowing how he's doing it, the same way a child speaks without knowing sort of the mechanisms involved. And that failure suggests, in other words, another truth, that we're creatures that are designed around a fundamental blindness to our own nature, our own vital being. To conclude, then, Galen sees the pursuit of life unfolding on two levels, that of the natural faculties and that of the rational conscious actor. At each level, life is the likely outcome, but it's not a necessary outcome. What endangers success at the level of the faculties is the nature of mixture. The trouble at the level of the body, or at the person, is the fact that our understanding of our bodies is never given nor guaranteed. That means that it's up to us to acquire the knowledge that we need to make the choices that allow life to sustain itself. The very possibility that we might not make these choices is, of course, what makes the pursuit of life an ethical endeavor. But the ethical nature of taking care is, is uh, secured at an even more basic level by the very non-transparency of nature to the rational soul. And that non-transparency, in the end, is absolute. By this, I don't mean that we can't gain a plausible, or in some cases, quite a secure knowledge of how parts work, how we digest food, how we excrete urine, and so on. We can acquire such knowledge. And what's more, by gaining that knowledge, we acquire to act like a sculptor on the body and ourselves. But what can never be known is nature from the inside. We may seek to secure the conditions under which natural faculties have a good chance of succeeding in their aims, and still we remain forever estranged from and perhaps surprised by each moment at which merely probable life is actualized. Thank you.